0: Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby. Alphalist is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is proudly presented by Dell Technologies. They are a team of experts that helps you solving all your IT-related challenges and IT needs in your daily business and consult you in choosing the right end-to-end IT solutions or products. They offer IT technology solutions for companies of any size, tailored to their needs, and have a huge product portfolio with IT solutions and know-how. They can help CTOs through providing end-to-end IT solutions, be it laptops, PCs, workstations or server storage, cloud and IoT solutions or financing. If you want to know more, please check the show notes to get a link. Welcome to the Alpha List podcast. I am your host Toby, and uh, today's episode is titled uh, "The Future of DevOps." Um, and my guest today is Alex, and Alex runs a co- company that is publicly listed and um, has a market cap of, I think, four billion. And they actually. Um, had quite funny news a while ago when they um, announced in our founding round. Um, the The title of the the news was Pager Duty raises ninety million to wake up more engineers in the middle of the night. Alex, welcome. May you want to want to tell us a bit more uh, about your company, um, and uh, then afterwards a bit more about yourself.
1: <laughs> sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, th- thanks for having me on. So yeah, uh, Alex Solomon. I'm one of the co-founders of uh, Pager Duty. I uh, started as the founding CEO and uh, ran ran uh, pager duty for the first uh, seven years, and then replaced myself and took on uh, the the CTO position and hired a great CEO to kind of get us to a uh, public company and beyond to that scale and. Um, yeah, I've been been CTO for a number of years now. Um, more recently, I'm f- I'm focused on a very important initiative at PagerDuty, which is how do we become a, a true platform, uh, and that comes with flexibility, extensibility, configurability, uh, and allowing developers to build on top. And um, we've we've already made some good progress on that. We have uh, everything you can do in the UI is uh, we have APIs for and. Uh, want to kind of continue to encourage that uh, ecosystem to build build around uh, our platform. Um, we've also done some really interesting work in the AI AIOps space, but before I, uh, I just give a quick overview, um, maybe uh, it's good to, to talk a little bit about where we started. So uh, uh, just a quick background on myself. Uh, before PagerDuty, I was working at Amazon as a software engineer. And uh, that's kind of where where we got the inspiration for for the product. Uh, Amazon was one of the pioneers of DevOps. Uh, I think they were doing DevOps before it was called DevOps. So the concept of full service ownership, where if you're a developer, you're on a small team, you build services or microservices, and you own them end to end, which means that you're responsible for not just writing code, but testing it, deploying it to production. And when something breaks in, in production, uh, you get paged. Back then we actually used pagers, and it was called being on pager duty because you carried a pager on your belt. Um, so after after leaving Amazon uh, and seeing the value of that way of working, well, while it's it may not be fun to get paged in the middle of the night uh, for some for one of your systems, it's actually really important because you're, you know, you're part of the team that built that system, so you understand it best. Um, so, yeah, after leaving uh, Amazon, I got together with my two other co-founders, um, Andrew and Baskar, and we, the way we came up with the idea was by thinking back from our time at Amazon, they had also worked in Amazon, um, what, what interesting tools and necessary tools had a company like Amazon built in-house out of necessity? And uh, the the on-call management uh, tool came up uh, and came to mind, and we we saw that Amazon built it, but Google had something similar, and you know Facebook had had their own flavor and version of it. So we thought, you know, this seems like there's a need here for you know this DevOps way of working for getting paged for your own systems, and that's kind of where where PagerDuty got started back in 2009. Um, and then since then, we've, you know, we've evolved it quite a lot. Uh, we, we now do full end-to-end incident management and incident response. Uh, uh, and when I say end-to-end, it's all the way from the alert to a uh, post-mortem for those big major incidents. It's also, uh, we've also invested a lot in AI ops. So I was going to talk a little bit about that, but that's all about pattern recognition and making sense of all of these, these alerts and events and change events and grouping related events and alerts together um, filtering out the noise is a big part of it and, and helping uh, resolvers uh, and responders understand the context. Like, is it just something, a problem that's impacting my service? Uh, it's isolated, or is it a cascading failure that's impacting lots of different services or a systemic failure or something caused by a third party provider? Like, you know, one of the big uh, cloud providers, uh, and you see this you see this in the news all the time these days it uh, goes down you know can impact yeah. lots of folks
0: fastly is um, actually a sponsor of this episode so i was not <laughs> very careful names. <laughs> <laughs> On purpose. yeah i can imagine that um, there... Was kind of yeah. a lot of paging going on in the last days? Then,
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We see that load in our system because a lot of a lot of uh, digitally native and you know more traditional companies that have lots of software systems. They they rely on us, and so we see that load every time uh, one of the big public uh, providers has an issue. And uh, what, like, if you if you recapulate um, a few
0: years back. Um, if I would have told you, Alex, you're going to own a four billion market cap, publicly listed company, paging engineers in the middle of the night, what what would would you would have been your answer?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's it's incredible. Our our journey has been has been amazing, and uh, you know, people ask me like, you know, when we started this, did you ever think? it was going to become so so big and so successful. I, I, the truth of it is, is, I didn't think it was going to become so big and successful. I thought, you know, we, we it was three founders. We knew we wanted to build a, a software company um, and a product, uh, more a B2B product. And, and we started this in 2009. And back then, if you remember, it wasn't sexy to build B2B SaaS. What was, yeah, what everyone was wanted to just build a B two C product, right? <laughs> yes, B two C, uh, advertising and eyeballs and iOS apps. That was that was the hotness, and and uh, companies like Zynga and, and mobile gaming and things like that were very, you know, Facebook games, mobile games were starting to really pick up. So, um, so you know, we we chose the unsexy path. We started PagerDuty with the intent of bootstrapping it. And um, when we saw that we were onto something and we had product market fit, we then changed course and, and uh, raised money to accelerate. We kind also did Y the, Combinator. The other way
0: around, right? Yeah. And I, th- I saw you that yeah. you received money. So first, I guess Y Combinator and then Wellington and Reason, Bessemer, Excel. That's like the, the crazy path, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, oh, once you switch paths, then, you know, you, it's, it's about growth. And, uh, we were able to really sustain that. Uh, we had, uh, we had a, a, we were solving a, and we are solving a hair on fire problem for a lot of companies.
0: Yeah. And when did you realize that you're solving this kind of a heavy problem and you have to enter growth mode? And how did that feel? I mean, did you personally do that or was that the time when you um, jumped on the CTO seat? Or I guess you were doing that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, yeah. I was uh, uh, founding CEO for the first seven years. So we, uh, I led us through the Series A and Series B, and then uh, Jennifer, who took over, uh, led us to CDE and and IPO. So, so the yeah, the first two rounds um, um, was was me and you know, of course, the team. Um, but yeah, like we. So after Y Combinator, we had raised the seed round. Which was uh, you know like around 1.9 million, and uh, we saw that we had you know solid traction. We were growing uh, exponentially uh, month over month, which is really good to see. And we were, we started thinking like well, I think we're onto something here. We have a bigger vision. Like we started with on-call management and and alerting as as kind of the phase one of of PagerDuty, and we had this much bigger vision to expand to that end-to-end incident management plus. Um, the the machine learning kind of pattern recognition that I was talking about as well with AI ops it wasn't called AI ops back then but the, but we always had that in mind like we have all this data we need to apply pattern recognition and machine learning to it and uh, and we saw that you know we had that opportunity to grow fast plus we were also a little bit in the back of our heads where there someone one of the big guys is going to enter this market and they're going to realize that it's it's very lucrative or a new startup's going to raise a ton of money and scoop us basically like overtake us so so that's why we decided to do that it was a, a rare opportunity to to build a new category at the end of the day
0: yeah yeah um interesting and was was your was your growth all um quotes, product-led growth or was it, was it, did you do any marketing? What What did you do back then? To, to,
1: yeah, to... good, good, good question. Uh, it was definitely product-led growth. Like early on, you know, we were, keep in mind, the company was started by three engineers with no prior startup or founding experience. So we had our biases. And one of my biases was well, I didn't really believe in sales early on. I thought you know uh, I looked at other companies. I looked at like maybe New Relic was one of the one of the ones that we kind of looked up to back then. And it was uh, you know uh, Lou famously also said he didn't believe in sales and that it should be product led growth and the product should do do the selling. So that's that was our initial approach, and it worked because we had a, a free trial. It was very easy to set up and very easy to adopt. And uh, we had that bottoms up uh, growth as well. So we we would start with one team inside one company and then it would grow to multiple teams and then it would grow to the, the entire department and it would grow to maybe beyond that to other departments. So we saw that happening within our customer base. Um, at the same time, I was handling, you know, sales myself. We had a sales ad email and, you know, I was I was getting on calls with customers and I saw, well, this is adding up. I'm, I'm running out of bandwidth to do this. So I, let's let's figure out how to build an initial sales team. We hired uh, our first two salespeople. Uh, this is, I think, back in 2012. And uh, we saw an immediate uh, spike in, in growth so so we saw the difference with you know it, it was inbound sales it was uh, not flying all over the country or you know meeting with customers per, in person it was all over the phone and over over um you know Zoom or whatever it's. Uh, I think it was Google Meet back then. Um, but uh, yeah, we saw that that immediate impact that sales could have, and especially I think we we made the right choice there, where we hired technical salespeople. We hired basically former engineers or folks who had gone through an engineering uh, education uh, who wanted to do sales, and uh, it, it, because it's a very technical product and a very technical audience and a very technical buyer, worked out really well. They wouldn't have wanted to talk to a kind of, say, typical salesperson who's not technical at all.
0: So you essentially reached out to, to free users or trial users and made them convert in a better way, essentially? Or
1: It was, uh, it was some of that. Like, we, where we saw, yeah, we had a free trial. And, uh, you know, when you have someone from a large Fortune 500 company signing up for a trial, you definitely want to talk to them. And then a lot of it was also talking to folks who were, uh, were already customers to get them to expand. And to see, you know, oh, they they purchased this many seats. Uh, they're using all of them. Let's talk to them about their kind of growth path, and about expanding to other other teams, other departments. And a lot of it was that as well. So we had that kind of bottoms so up landed expand.
0: Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, as you're talking about paths, um, I'd, I'd be curious to know your your like path as a as a geek or nerd. So. Uh, how did you how did you get into computing um, early on? I mean, it's kind of uh, interesting to learn at such a to 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 found such a such a nerdy tool. Uh, so I'd be curious of what what you're up to or what you were up to.
1: Yeah, I think uh, uh, you know probably not super unusual, but I was uh, growing up in middle school and high school. I was really into uh, computer games. Uh, so, like playing first person shooters like Wolfenstein and Doom, and you know the the really uh, you know the the really old old school ones. and i I kind of got interested in uh, programming and making my own games. And got, I think my, my parents got me a Q basic book when I was in middle school, so I read that cover to cover and started building some of the examples and some of the games in 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 the book. and then, from there, I took some classes in in uh, middle school and high school. Uh, some of it was around uh, Pascal, some of it was uh, for uh, around C plus plus, and uh, yeah. And then uh, I did a uh, software engineering uh, 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 education at the University of Waterloo, and then ended up at Amazon. So that's that's kind of my path. I was always uh, into programming and doing my own side projects. And uh, was then got interested in, in entrepreneurship. I was reading uh, Paul Graham's essays uh, and reading about other companies that were going through Y Combinator and the advantage of doing that. And uh, that's kind of how we we ended up doing our own thing and and getting into Y Combinator and the rest is history, I guess.
0: And, and um, speaking of Y Combinator, is it really worth it from your perspective? I mean, uh, you ended up with quite good VCs. Is that uh, like all thanks to Y Combinator or?
1: I, yeah, I, I would say yes, absolutely. For us, I mean, keep in mind, we were three engineers with no startup experience. We didn't know anything about fundraising. We didn't know anything about investors. We didn't know really how to build a, a pitch deck or any, any of that. So for us, we we had... Uh we we had the idea, we had built it out, we already had some customers paying us by the time we got into Y Combinator. So for us, the the biggest benefit, and it was a big benefit, was was it was a boot camp for fundraising. So as part of the program, uh Paul Graham uh walked us through the process of building a pitch deck and and thinking big and coming up with that big vision for the company. Um, and introduced us to lots of investors along the way. So, uh, a bunch of them became our angel investors, and then they helped us uh, c- continue to craft our pitch and our vision. Uh, James Lindenbaum stands out. Uh, he was uh, one of the co-founders of Heroku, um, and he's now uh, running HeavyBit. And he he helped us a ton in terms of fundraising, and we ended up raising a very successful Series A with Andreessen. So um, I think, yeah, the, we we set down that path of like looking at accelerating and raising money, and Y Combinator was instrumental.
0: And um, if, you, if you look at like times today um, or, or your path, when did you discover your, your secret sauce and what is it actually? I mean, it's, I guess, not, not sending pages to people uh, these days, but, but a bit more. When, when did you discover, okay, this is like really, uh, we, we really, really discovered our mojo and um, this is going to be fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say in that first phase of growth, it was definitely around centered around on-call management and alerting. And what, what was interesting for us is that we were a little surprised that this uh, this kind of a product didn't exist already. And what we found through talking to customers and, and working with a lot of different clients is that the, a lot of them were building their own or they were doing something very manual. Or they had people uh, in a in a room, basically an operation center or a NOC, um, watching screens and waiting for things to for alerts to pop up. Um, that's kind of the the traditional uh, IT operations way of doing it, which uh, DevOps has changed and and kind of or turned around a like little bit. The, like
0: the classical Nagios together with uh, I don't know uh, some SMS provider uh, to to page you, yep. which <laughs> and passing the phone around.
1: Phone. Yep, yeah. <laughs> that's From around te- from team member to team member. Uh, and those solutions are, you know, they're kind of janky. Like when you, when you're trying to scale and, and, um, build a very software centric kind of product or company, um, you run into limitations where something happens, a problem happens. Uh, the person doesn't answer for whatever reasons people make mistakes. And, uh, at that point, uh, you know it falls through the cracks and uh, you know, that problem can cause many hours of business impact or customer impact on the on the customer's end so so those are some of the the problems that we ensured is that every single issue would get handled quickly by someone and when you had a major incident that required lots of different teams and lots of different people, we would facilitate that response get everyone in on a on a chat channel, usually Slack, and get everyone in on a conference call, or now Zoom, and uh, you know facilitate the the response so that nothing falls to the cracks and the business impact, customer impact is mitigated.
0: I think it's actually a nice time to start. Like even to, as of today, starting B two B SaaS products as it's 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 so easy to create value still, right? Um, and um, it, it like especially the time you started was like a like a revolution um when um there was this or is still this mind shift of of engineers um who first thought yeah okay i'm going to host it myself it's like a a free devops product i can download somewhere like nagios like an open source version i'm going to host it myself it's nice it's okay it does the job to uh, so like something where like you really have like that those great solution like 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 yours um when you suddenly start thinking okay if i take this solution and i pay alex let's say um 200 bucks per month um then i actually save one full time en- engineer potentially um that i would have to employ in addition uh, to just maintain that nagios um i think that's a that's a great mind shift that is happening still right
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we have lots of examples of companies trying to do it themselves or find creative solutions to to handling this, and then ultimately, in the in the longer term, they realize no, you know, it's better to just pay pay for a product that war ju- that just works and handles this and works every time. So I remember one of uh, one uh, or one of our early customers, a social media company was uh, 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 using a service for doctors on-call, for on-call doctors. So basically when something goes wrong, they get an email from a monitoring tool, then they have a schedule or an on-call schedule in Excel, they look up uh, someone's name, they look up their phone number, they call them and they read the 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 email and the title of the email and the error, the alert error over the phone to that person. And these folks are not technical because they usually deal with doctors and paging doctors. So they don't know how to read like the, the you know, CPU 03 dot whatever <laughs> is greater than 99%. Uh, it, it was an um, interesting solution. And then, you know, when they, realized that uh, it wouldn't scale and uh, things would fall to the cracks. They, they joined, you know, they, they came on to become a, a great customer of ours.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Um, and
0: um, how did you become like a, a love product for developers as like the topic generally being paged at night is somehow not like the the most popular one, right? How did you, do you make sure that engineers still love you
1: yeah, good question. So it's always been a love hate thing, uh, where you know they they <laughs> uh, there's a little bit of oh I just got paged again, but what I've always said to that is like you know we're don't we're just a messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. It's you got paged because of a real reason in your systems, um, and what I would say is one of one of the interesting benefits of something like this that was a little bit of a pleasant surprise is that it provides uh, a better kind of work-life balance for engineers. Because if you think before PagerD what they were doing is they were, uh, they were just sending the alert to everyone on the team. And then what happens then is you get all, all of these alerts or you're or you're always on call all the time. And what happens in that case, you can't be on call all the time. So what would happen is someone will be, will usually step up and other people will kind of quit, uh, slowly back away and it would end up being, well, usually one or two people that take the brunt of the load. And with, hmm. with something like PagerDuty, even just for the on-call use case, it's you know when you're on call, you know when you own it and you're responsible for it. So it's this concept of ownership is really important. And you know when you're not on call, which is great because you can go do stuff. You can go out to a bar uh, you know, before COVID when you can still go to bars. Or uh, you, can, you can go camping or you can hang out with your family. Um, and uh, you're not responsible for on call, someone else is. So that was an important kind of quality of life benefit.
0: This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the Edge Cloud movement. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, The New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash list. So, what do you think? Like, you went throughout, like, a... Few decades uh, where DevOps really developed um, started with bare metal, and now it's about managing Kubernetes clusters. And at the same time, like the the um, uh, platform as a service world kind of kind of developed in a way. Uh, it's not there yet. I think. Um, what, do, what do you think will follow? How do, how does it look like tomorrow?
1: Yeah, um, I, th- I think the the way it's evolved is we've we've been moving away from uh large monoliths i mean if you think like 10 15 20 years ago that's what software was it was a large monolithic application built on uh infrastructure with a database and compute and a lot of shared services in terms of databases and compute and we've been moving towards service-oriented architectures where you break up that monolith into services that talk to each other and now microservices so the unit the service unit has gotten smaller and easier to understand and more um, isolated. Um, and now we have serverless as well. So we're talking about functions, which is and a service becoming a collection of functions. So while the unit, each unit has gotten smaller and easier to understand for a person or a team. Uh, the entire system has gotten more and more complex. It's a large distributed system with all of these services or microservices um, talking to each other. And it goes beyond a single human's capacity to understand the entire system and have it loaded in their, in their brain. So the only way you can manage that level of complexity is by leveraging tools and leveraging data and leveraging things like a service directory or a service mesh. Um, tools like, you know, your Datadog and PagerDuty and HashiCorp and all the, you know, AWS tools are really important. And it's, it's about like having distributed teams that own those distinct, distinct units and that have that end-to-end ownership. So that's what you know, I, I would say. Dev, uh, one of the core tenets of DevOps is around the full-service ownership concept of you build it, you own it. You're writing code. You're you're uh, getting paid for those systems in production. And um, I think, you know, with the trend of SLAs and SLOs and understanding what are your requirements for uptime for those systems? Is this a tier one business critical system? So if it goes down, like uh, our revenue flow for the company stops, like a shopping cart or something like that, or is it more of a tier two? So if it goes down you have a degraded performance situation. So I think, the, yeah, the trend will continue down this path of more and more complexity uh, you know, software is eating the world. World to to throw out a well-used cliche. So uh, that's not going to stop anytime soon. And uh, DevOps is here to stay. And uh, as an engineer, you have to kind of become this almost like a mixed martial artist. You have to know how to not just write code, but have to understand how that system works in production. You have to understand distributed systems and distributed architectures. And uh, well, at the same time, what's what's great is some of the cloud providers are making it a lot easier for us. Like that, you can you can get Aurora as a distributed database from AWS, and it works pretty much all the time. And you don't have to run your own MySQL and run your own backups and run your own uh, you know multi-cluster systems, which can get very complex. So so some things are getting much easier and nicer to uh, for for developers as well.
0: So co- complexity managing complexity is getting a bit easier, but. Um, you also like, then uh, went through all uh, the good times as well. Um, I, as far as I know, you, you're also into Rails, right? Or started with Rails, is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, we started with a monolith, of course. We started with a Ruby yeah. on Rails uh, MySQL monolith. And we, we've been breaking it up into services for the last 10 years. And we still have the monolith, but uh, uh, we have a lot of services around it as well.
0: And um, uh, I don't know if you ever listened to, uh, I, for example, did a podcast with David Hanneman Henson a while ago, where he was like largely ranting against microservices um, and um, uh, like advertising the uh, mon- uh, majestic monolith as he calls it. What, what do you think about that? Is that is there some truth in it, or?
1: Yeah, I do think there are there are different ways to do it. So that is a very valid approach. I mean, I know. Um, uh, I have some friends who work at Shopify, and they are—they've uh, taken that same approach to great success, where they have multiple, multiple monoliths, um, but and they've invested in in uh, the upkeep and and care of those monoliths. What what happens uh, in, in uh, you know sometimes is that the monolith becomes kind of the the legacy system, and that's that for better or for worse has happened at PagerDuty, where the monolith has become the legacy system. Um, and we've been breaking it up into services. But that's been a very valid approach as well, where um, you know we've we've designed these services for scale, for failure tolerance um, and for separation of concerns. And um, if you can layer on a uh, you know backend for front-end or GraphQL layer on top, then that helps manage that complexity of all these services. with a monolith, what's great is you can run a single query. And uh, it's a single database and you can do all the joins you want. In a service world, you have to call all these APIs and then stitch all that data together. And now we have tools for that too with GraphQL and some of these other architectural patterns like back-end frontend front-end and having API gateways. So so it, it makes it easier to manage the complexity of a model. And so I think both are valid approaches, but you have to really invest in either approach to make it work well. There's no free lunch in other words
0: okay okay yeah like it is always right but do you think i i still need to manage a kubernetes cluster 10 years from now i mean kubernetes kind of appeared and now it's everywhere and um on the other side we see that like platform as a service um i mean for for you as a as a as a fellow rails guy um you you also know the, the quality of it um and uh, it's in a way very Hard to to scale applications. Uh, do you think it's it's here to stay or?
1: I do. I, I mean, uh, first uh, first of all, these these uh, trends in in architecture um, and the trend from monoliths to service oriented to microservices to uh, now serverless is starting to take off, or the trend from bare metal to virtualized to. Um, uh, to to uh, containerization, uh, these trends each take about ten years, uh, from what I've seen. So they are very long trends, and even though uh, you know a, a large company may have a lot of Kubernetes, they're still going to have virtualized stuff, and they're still going to have uh, some of the old stuff as well, some of the some of the legacy on-prem uh, bare metal stuff, and and it takes a very long time uh, for for these trends to shift. And um, I would say, secondly, what, what's what been happening uh, over the last number of years is that the the cloud providers, AWS, Azure, GCP, have all made it easier to run a Kubernetes cluster. In fact, they run the cluster for you. So you don't have to manage your own cluster. You don't have to deal with that complexity. You don't have to deal with like the versions and upgrades and incompatible upgrades or not non-backwards compatible upgrades and all of that. They just do it for you and they offer it to you as a service. So it makes it not not completely free, but it it removes a lot of that operational load from from you, so that you can just rely on their their service. Um, so I think that that trend is going to continue, and you're going to use Kubernetes. You might not have to run your own cluster, probably not. You probably won't have to run your own cluster. Mm-hmm.
0: The, the major clouds also like all have a solution which in a way could replace your product. And um, so I mean, looking at GCP there's, there's a stack driver um, is that like competition for you guys or is it still that like the typical developer just wants to have like a pingdom or a pager duty um, instead because it's something they know
1: yeah it's it's not really competition because um, you know these these cloud providers what they uh, their strategy from from what i can tell is that They want to provide a a good set of tools, but their their core domain is around uh, networking, compute and storage. And and part of storage is like providing more of a platform with databases as a service and such. But um, these other tools, uh, basically from what I've seen, is they provide a kind of a basic version of a tool. Like, you know, AWS's CloudWatch, I I don't know if calling it a basic version is, is doing it justice. But basically, what we've seen is that as soon as you need monitoring at scale, folks are going to use something like a Datadog or a New Relic, and it's, it's similar to all of these tools that are not part of that core domain of you know, AWS, Azure, or GCP that are around storage, network, and compute. It's uh, here's a basic version of a tool; it gets you started. It's great if you're 100% AWS, or it's great if you're 100% Azure, and it works. But as soon as you have multiple clouds, or as soon as you have some on-prem stuff, and you have other tools, and you don't just have cloudwatch, but you have like some HP and IBM legacy tools, and you have some on-prem stuff, and you have some solar winds, and you have this and that. The complexity uh, grows, and you can't use the AWS native version. You have to use something that operates outside of that and that integrates with everything. And that's that's I would say that's one of our advantages. We have like 400 integrations. We've live and die by our integrations, where we've called ourselves the Switzerland of monitoring because we're friends and partners <laughs> with everyone. And we work with, with all the monitoring tools from Nagios you know, 15 years ago to the latest, the greatest, and most modern tools, and all the cloud providers as well. So that's how I think about it. It's not really a competitive thing. It's more of a partner thing.
0: And uh, speaking about competition, uh, I mean, there are there's there's a ton of tools available these days i mean you just mentioned lou with new relic and pay, PagerDuty, pager duty datadog sumo logic sentry and um i think like a lot of them are also taking the platform approach are you sometimes a, afraid of i don't know uh losing yourself in the in, in the large space of of the platform world um and and somehow losing focus and on a uh, not fulfilling like the 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 single use case that your your customers initially uh, bought your tool for.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So so we have to be very intentional about what we are and what we're not. So we've from early on we've said we don't do monitoring. We we are uh, like I said the Switzerland of monitoring, which means that we're we're partners with everyone, but we're an aggregator. So we sit on top of all of the monitoring tools and we aggregate all of the alerts coming out of all of those tools. Uh, so we're not, yeah, we're not competitive with like your data dogs or new relics, where we're good partners with them and CloudWatch and you know, you name it. And uh, we're very oriented around the people side of things. So we ingest all of these alerts, but our, our bread and butter is around ensuring that uh, when something happens that requires human attention, that it gets to the right person or to the right set of people as quickly as possible. And I, I would say the other element that we've we've made a big investment in AI ops. I talked about like making sense of all this data, filtering out the noise, um, helping you understand the problem so you can get to a resolution faster. And then um, the other element uh, that's really exciting for us is uh, the world of automation. So last year we made an acquisition, a company called Rundeck, which is all about uh, automated automated remediation or Runbook automation. So it's about like when when you have an incident. Can, uh, is there is there a, a script that you can run or or a set of actions that you can run to resolve that incident in a repeatable way? Like for example, restart the server is a common thing for a lot of these smaller incidents, or take the server out of a load balancer, or you know, there's a there's a few there's a toolbox of actions that you may want to take. And as a as a person who's who's on the front lines who's responding to these, you want those actions to be at your fingertips. We kind of call this Iron Man mode, like. Uh, you, you get page for something and you have this set of tools that you can quickly invoke to uh, get a, additional diagnostics, like run some debugging scripts, show me the, the logs, uh, give me this debugging and diagnostic data for additional context to understand the problem and triage the problem. And then uh, the other, uh, there's a set of tools around fixing the actual problem. And then finally, um, uh, if you can automate it end to end, like where it doesn't need a person to get paged at all? Why not just do that in the first place? So that so that's an exciting area for us, and a lot of companies are jumping on the automation bandwagon in terms of how do how do you do more with less? How do you become more operationally efficient? Uh, how do you how do you not hire as many people to to handle operations and SRE and DevOps? Uh, so so I think that automation is key to that, and and of course there's an opportunity to to leverage machine learning there as well, and you know, looking for ways to automate and, and uh, hey, you've run this action in the past. Can we just do it for you now? You know, seeing that trend line, seeing that pattern, it's all about pattern recognition there as well. Okay. So if I would ask you
0: now what your top three recommendations for CTOs that want to build up or have to build up a service reliability engineering department are, what, what would be your answer?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it matters about the scale. So if you're just starting out, um, like hiring your first, uh, you know, you're, you someone who I would say, if you can get someone, hire someone who's, who's done it before someone who's led a DevOps team or an SRE team, um, uh, that would be great because especially at a, at a, uh, at a company that's that's um, you know using the technologies or has used the technologies that you're using, um, that's really important. Um, I would say, you know, it depends on on the the maturity and, and where you are in that. If you're starting fresh. If you're starting like, like a startup, you can start using the latest and greatest tools and the latest and greatest uh, infrastructure from day one. You can start using AWS or, or Azure or GCP. You can use all of their platform as a service uh, functionality and you don't have to do all of this yourself. In fact, you shouldn't. You should, you should try to get the product market fit as quickly as possible. Uh, instead of worrying about how to, you know, run bare metal servers in a data center. Like that's not a good use of your time a good investment um and And then you hire folks of, who have experience in that environment and who have who have led teams uh, of SREs or you know um, um, release engineers or, or any of these kind of specialties uh, uh, to get to get that scale. But if you are a larger company and you're just dipping your toe into the cloud world, then um, what I would recommend is that you start building new applications in the cloud and you start thinking about a migration plan. For, for existing apps. Then um, some of them will move to the cloud because they're low hanging fruit. Some of them will take longer. It will be a phased approach. And uh, I would say probably similarly, you want someone who with that cloud experience, but maybe someone who's worked at a larger company that has been in a hybrid environment where they, they have done some migration, cloud migration and they have experience with that as well. I know it's, it's a hard question to answer because it's so broad and there's so yeah. many things to consider.
0: OK, um, as you, I would say you, you still consider yourself a geek. Um, I'm also a very geeky person, and I have like those, those tools I, I pick up somewhere and then start recommending to everyone. So for example, my last thing was, I think, Metabase was, was one thing I, I, I found and discovered and, and recommended to everyone, or um, Airtable. Is there anything you, you absolutely love and uh, annoy everyone with these days?
1: Yeah, actually, you mentioned Airtable. I'm I'm uh, playing around with it right now because, um, funny enough, uh, the way I learned database programming way back in the day was using Microsoft Access. If you remember that, it, it's it's like a visual programming environment, but desktop on Windows, um, and uh, it makes it really easy to whip up a quick little application and. Uh, I've been saying this for many years, like, why Why doesn't a modern version of Microsoft Access for the web exist? And now it does. And there's a lot of companies uh, doing that now. And what's great about it is you can whip something up really quickly. Like, uh, you know, if you're very particular about how you manage your to-do list, you can have a to-do app in, in Airtable. Or, you know, if, uh, one thing I've been playing around with is like feature requests and tracking feature requests for for the products. I, I don't have anything built yet, but I've been kind of thinking about it in the back of my my, my mind because there's not a good way to do that today, or I haven't seen a, a good way to track feature requests. Um, so we're, we're, we might be playing around with that at, at some point, uh, but yeah, I'm a big fan of Airtable because it gives you that flexibility. Plus it gives you all these apps that, that are pre-built that you can start using or, or modifying if you want.
0: Okay, yep. I also love playing with it for for like internal stuff, internal tooling. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's just great to save engineering power and time. Um then I still have a little um sur- surprise for you as an as an outro question. So um I had the chance to talk to your co-founder, Andrew, and he brought up this little surprise for you. So he gave me a very, very old hardware pager prototype that you guys hmm. must have built in the early days and later on abandoned due to strange behavior and it has one feature that you folks somehow came up with i think you personally invented it and um, it is called time travel the time travel feature and it still has a date preset in which um i think it, it's um july 26 um, and that is the month when you actually started working at amazon and um we now have the chance to hit like the travel button and um, have the ch- take the chance to observe you for a while uh, when like young Alex was coding at Amazon, and um, you have the chance to now whisper something into young Alex ears. What what would it be?
1: Mm, good good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I I would say. Um, Back then, what what do I wish I know I I knew back then that I I would tell myself if I could go back in time, that's a great question. Um, you know, I would say keep keep learning, and I was doing a lot of that. Uh, you know, at Amazon, I was a, I was trying to you know I was I was I joined the company as a fresh grad, and so I was uh, kind of uh, learning learning a lot about their infrastructure and learning a lot about you know the DevOps way of working. But I'd say, you know, double down on that. Um, there's not a lot I, you know, I wish I had done differently in, in the grand scheme of things because, you know, we are here and we're in a good place. So I would say um, one of the other things I wish I had done maybe a little bit differently is invest in, I, I wish I had invested more in kind of um, getting better mentors, getting getting folks that I could talk to and explore ideas with and, and uh folks can push me uh out of my comfort zone uh, and then i would say also like uh focus on the, the the flip side of work which is kind of that um your personal life especially if you work at a you know a large company like you you don't have to work 80 hours a week every every day you know, or every week you can have a little bit more of a work life balance so investing in that uh a little bit you don't have to like you know completely biased in one way or the other but have a good balance there is important uh, because because you're going to build friendships while you're young that are going to last a lifetime and and investing more in that is is really important because then you have that circle of people that uh that are going to be with you for a long time
0: great stuff and um on the mentorship piece um isn't that like one of the key values you get from y combinator
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the network is incredible. It's been super helpful for us uh, in terms of like not not just like learning the fundraising stuff that I was talking about, but also like relationships with with companies and being able to get an introduction to to the right person at a large company, which is going to become a customer. So, so that's that's been really key. And I think our our investors in general have been a great resource. Um, you know, of 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 those connections in that network. Um, but sometimes, you know, an investor is an investor and not really a mentor. And having someone in a mentorship role where they're there, you know, they can pick up the phone anytime and you can be very vulnerable in front of them and you can, you know, open yourself up completely. It's hard to do that with an investor because they're also an investor. Obviously, so it, <laughs> They are. see, the oh, Alex doesn't know this. then That could be bad. <laughs> so it's, it's just hard psychologically to have that cycle. Psych- going to psychological safety it's hard to to achieve that with someone who has a vested interest in your company
0: okay so um thanks a lot alex it it was super nice talking to you really um great company that you've built there thanks a lot alex talk to you soon
1: bye bye thank you enjoy your day